0: All right, welcome back to A Voice for the Kids, Child USA's podcast. My name is Jillian Rook, and I am the Executive Director at Child USA. So today what we're going to talk about, there's been a lot of news surrounding the Supreme Court and the many decisions that have come down, but we wanted to take the time to really explain how certain cases that were decided at the Supreme Court affect our children. Um, So today we have two brilliant legal minds to teach us about what these decisions mean for our kids, and they are our CEO and founder, Professor Marcy Hamilton, and our legal director, Alice Boone. Um, Marcy, Alice, thank you for joining us today. Let's let's dive right in. Um, so the first case I want us to talk about is Kenner- Kennedy v. Bremerton. What is, what is this case and what happened? Give our audience a little bit of background on that.
1: So this is one of those cases that got lost in all the media about the Dobbs decision on abortion. Uh, But this is a case where a uh, football coach was holding, uh, well, what he said he was doing was privately praying on the 50-yard line after football games that he had coached. Um, But in fact, what he was doing, which you can figure out by looking at the dissent's pictures of what he was doing, is he was gathering some of his, his teammates, his, um, from the other team, the visiting team, uh, community members and adults, and kind of holding a prayer service right in the middle of the public schools, football. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's their stage, everybody knows what's going on. So um, in the past, the court has had a doctrine that said the government may not endorse religious belief. And it may not endorse one religious viewpoint. That was something that was a test that was created by Justice O'Connor, who I clerked for, and it was all about keeping the government in the schools from um, coercing children to think they have to believe something or they have to pray in some way.
0: And that past, sorry to interrupt. Well, is that is that why kids can't like? Is that why like you're not supposed to like pray in school? Is that related to that decision?
1: This is an extended extenuation of the earlier no prayers in school led by the government. And so at this point, but before Kennedy was decided the rule was, is that children, of course, can pray individually. What the government can't do and the school, public schools, the government, is they can't lead prayer. And there's even a case that says they can't lead prayer at a football game, um, at a Texas football game. So that's the Doe decision. And so if those earlier cases had held, this case would have said that he did not have the ability to endorse his religion on a football field immediately after a football game. Um, What the court did, however, and this was really one of the biggest news stories of the uh, term that did not get picked up, Mm -hmm. picked up. Is they completely reversed the concept of endorsement so that schools may endorse um, religious faith, and that in fact it's not a problem that he was engaged in prayer at the 50-yard line following a game with team members um, and with other kids in the area. You know, the the real problem here is what about the kid who's not a believer in Christianity, who's a Christian believer. Uh, what about the Muslim? What about the Hindu? What, what about the Jew, right? That he's observing a religious faith and the students are gathered around him. And so it seems to me, if you know the psyche of teenage kids, that uh, there's some pressure there. You know, you, you want to play football. You want to be on a team. Uh, you're going to do what, your co- what it looks like will get your coach's favor. And in the past, he wouldn't have been able to do that. But this court is not at all concerned about that kind of uh, endorsement or coercion of the teenage mind. So
0: So what was their argument in saying that this was okay to do? What did what was the argument that won this case?
1: It really wasn't the argument. It was the reading of the facts. So the court repeatedly, you know, this predominantly Catholic um, Christian believers majority uh they kept saying that he, all he was doing was engaging in private prayer. That's it. It's Just private prayer. What's wrong with that? And we've already set up that, of course, you can pray privately in school, whether you're a teacher or a student. So this was all great. The problem is, is that those weren't the facts of the case. And so the dissent did something just as Sotomayor. I am not in my time. I haven't seen this before. She actually included the pictures of the facts of the case in the dissent and showed this wasn't some guy praying by himself to say, thank you, Lord, for our win or help me with our loss. This was a gathering that he put together. And, And the other factor that the dissent raised and that the majority pretended didn't happen is he was holding media events in support of his being able to pray at school and to pray with students at school, um, and that he was refusing to talk to the school. Uh, So this was a more nefarious case in my view on the separation of church and state, but this is a court that has been dismantling separation for about 20 years. And this was their probably penultimate move, but essentially, they overrule Lemon v. Kurtzman, which was the, the, the standard reasoning. They overrule the concept that endorsement is a problem. And they opened the door to a coach to gather his team around him to say a prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who cares about the kids that don't believe what he believes?
0: Yeah. So what is this? So, you know, I think there are larger implications for what this means for us overall um, in regards to separation of church and state. But what are the implications for our kids? So what does this now mean for kids in school? What, how are they going to be affected by this?
1: Here, here are the kids I'm concerned about, the kids from atheist families. Uh, you know, kids who don't believe in the United States have often been treated terribly in the schools um, mm-hmm. by their fellow classmates. So if a kid does not join this prayer group, does he get labeled? Is this some kid who doesn't have the right beliefs to be in this town? Uh, I really, really worry about the sense that they've been removed from the, um, the community. In, instead of before the community, the school had the obligation to make them feel at home and welcome. So, but it's not just secularists it's anyone who doesn't have the same beliefs as the, the coach who's decided that he's now going to uh, hold essentially a prayer meeting uh, immediately after a game.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it could also like make kids potentially lie about their beliefs and just force them into beliefs that aren't part of their culture or their heritage. Cause I can't imagine that anybody thinks the football coach doesn't have power over who's a starter and who's not a starter. Right. So and at a high school level, that can mean the difference between a scholarship to college and not no scouts coming to see you at all.
1: Precisely. And those arguments were made and a majority of the Supreme Court completely tossed them for the right of the believer to prayer to pray where they choose to pray.
0: Very interesting. Um, well, so let's stick with the schools. There was another decision that came down in Carson v. Macon. Um, what was this one all about?
1: So this should be a really disturbing decision um, for anybody that's worried about our public school systems.
0: Well, so essentially,
1: <laughs> I, you know, I hope we all are, but yeah. um, essentially the court was asked to answer the following question. Maine had a law. That or their constitution that said that um, there would be free public education for all students in the state. Um, They were required to fund it under the constitution. And so what Maine was doing was funding those schools that were public and or non-sectarian. In other words, the the state was not underwriting the uh, teachings going on at Um, sectarian religious schools. The, a religious school, uh, well, a a parent uh, came who wanted to send their kid to a religious school says, "Um, that's unconstitutional. Uh, What you are doing is you are violating the free exercise rights and also the equality rights of my children to attend the school they choose to attend and therefore, state you have to underwrite both both at the same time the public schools the charter schools and guess what the religious schools this is a long path that has been um, carved out by conservatives in the united states to create an argument that public schools the funding for public schools cannot be limited to public schools it must also flow equally to religious schools.
0: Interesting, yeah, I mean, my I have so many questions, but my biggest question is, will the religious schools be required to have the same curriculum as the public schools?
1: <laughs> That's the hard part, because um, the, it's not clear the state is enforcing a substantial equivalence requirement across all schools in in terms of the quality of education. Uh, And religious schools get more leeway to not follow uh, the requirements of how much English, math, history, science you get. And so uh, it it has the potential to water down the quality of education that's at the core of our future by funneling state funds to schools that are not fully teaching the secular subjects that every child needs.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I understand, you know, let's break down for our listeners, like why, how this is going to affect kids in public schools, right? Like why is this decision to say, you now, you may now need to fund not just public schools, but also, I'm assuming that like you could then use this decision to say also private schools, also religious schools, also charter schools. Um, what, what is this going to mean for kids in public schools?
1: So what it means for these kids in public schools is that the reality is the state budget each year is a zero sum game. You have you have the same amount of money. Now you have to add money for the religious schools, and so you're going to have to take it from the public schools in order to be able to fund both. Uh, So either Maine needs um, a a huge uh, amount of money dumped into the state so that they can bring up to speed the religious schools in terms of the secular education um, or the public schools suffer. And um, there's some intentionality in that in both the entities that are pushing for this vision of equal payment uh, through taxpayer dollars. And um, and this court is on board with that vision.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems without like a giant influx of more money, which would mean higher taxes for the, you know, people that live in Maine, um, that we're just going to see the public schools in Maine lose some funding.
1: Um, That's right. That's right. Unless you dramatically increase um, the, uh, the tax rates or federal funding, either of which I see happening tomorrow.
0: Yeah. I have a feeling that won't happen either. Um, you
1: know, so, so just to summarize where I think we need to go. Um, mm-hmm. the biggest problem with this opinion is they never consider the needs of the child. There's a whole education opinion. It's just like Wisconsin v. Yoder. It's all about the adults. If you look at it from the needs of the child, I think every state really needs to be thinking about minimum standards for every single child in every single school, and that those minimum standards have to be a prerequisite to state funding. Yeah. Um,
0: in all honesty, I would say the federal government should step in at a certain point. I believe there should be a federal standard for the, like, the baseline of an education. I know that you know, education is state to state. It's, it's been given to the states to figure out their curriculum. But I think that what we've seen, at least in my experience and in working in schools across the country is states take a lot of leeway. And I think it would be good to have just like a federal baseline of like, here is what every kid in the United States should be getting educated on regardless of type of school, where that school is, any of those things. But so, yeah, well, I mean,
1: that radical vision that we have at Child USA is that children should be the centerpiece of education decisions and not the adults that are um, controlling the system. It's supposed to educate children. So, 100% agree. Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's come to the decision that everybody has been talking about and probably why a couple of these other these other decisions haven't gotten the attention that they deserve, um, Dobbs v. Jackson. So we all know, or you know, probably most of us know what this was the decision overturning Roe versus Wade, but why don't you um, go ahead and, and just give a quick summary of what happened in this case as well.
1: Sure. Um, so here we have Dobbs uh, overruling Roe v. Wade. The last time there was a live threat against Roe, it was in 1989. Oh. Um, so here we go. The, the court essentially says that the basis of Roe v. Wade is irrational um, and that viability even doesn't make sense. Uh, Now, they criticized the three trimester approach of Roe, but that had already been wiped away by the Casey decision, so that we were at the point where the constitutional right to abortion was a right of the woman to obtain an abortion in in consultation with her doctor. Uh, But there could still be regulation and the regulation could exist if it didn't pose an undue burden on the mother the court picked up the majority, uh, six, justices picked all of that up and threw it out. And they said, there are two things that we need to think about with respect to children. Uh, they basically said, we're throwing it back to the states and uh, the states can do what they think is, is best. Uh, so what they do is they say, the mother doesn't have any rights Um, So the state can make any regulation it wants. But the court also slyly throws in reference to personhood and essentially is talking about the fact that there's been a movement in the United States in conservative states for about uh, 25 years in which they have been passing amendments to the state constitution or state laws that say a fetus is a person. Persons hold constitutional rights. So, the, the upshot of Dobbs is that the fetus has constitutional rights potentially in a number of states, um, and that the court is likely going to recognize that, but the pregnant person does not. Uh, and from the perspective of Child USA, this case is just like the first two we discussed in Kennedy and in Carson and in Dobbs. There's not any consideration of the perspective of the child. There is nothing about what happens to a child if they become pregnant. Essentially, the court opens the door to criminalizing it, even for children, as uh, some of the states are now doing.
0: Well, we saw, wasn't it, was it Indiana where there was that, or was it Ohio? Where where it was a 10-year-old that was pregnant and she had to leave the state to get an abortion. This has happened literally since Roe was overturned. So we're going to, I think we're going to see it more and more.
1: Well, it's, it's horrific because when uh, teenage girls, you know, post-adolescent girls get pregnant, their bodies aren't ready. And so for a 10 year old uh, to get pregnant, she may well not have been able to ever have a child ever again uh, because the body isn't prepared for it. Or she may have died in childbirth, or you know that what the stats show us is that teenage pregnancies lead to lower education, less thriving, and um, a lot more challenges in life than a child who isn't pregnant as a child. So, um, so this is bleak. I think I, I, I I've started to call it. Because of course, this concept that life begins at conception, which so many states are adopting, um, it's the divine right of the fetus. fetus. And this court is just saying, it's not saying anything about that directly. What it's saying directly is states have at it. And so what that opens up the door to is like the 10-year-old we've all heard about. But trust me, There are many, many more children who have been sexually assaulted by family incest or rape around the country that are pregnant, um, that are not getting the medical care they need right now to be able to either survive being pregnant or uh, not to have their lives destroyed.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very shocking because, you know, the fact that it's as though the court ignored that children themselves can become pregnant. Um, And I just don't know why that's such a a thing they would overlook. And it's just really, really baffling and frustrating. Um, Do we, so I feel like we kind of covered this. It's, you know, Kids that will get pregnant are not going to be able to get the services that they need. They're going to have to flee the states. And so I think what we're really going to see is that, um, you know, a lot of dangerous situations for kids that, like you said, or even, you know, pregnant from their from their boyfriend and are are 15 and they and they just don't want to be a parent yet. Um, I think that, you know. We've got to consider all of the issues that this will raise for children that, and I think it's just very short-sighted and, and not realistic with the times that we're in to think that kids aren't going to have sex. Um, right. And at the same time, I can speak to for a lot of schools I worked in, sex education isn't there either. So um, we're, you know, really failing kids on both both sides of the, of the issue here.
1: Well, you know, what the court's done is turn this into a federal fight turn it from a federal fight into a 50 state fight. Yeah. Um, And so now we will be watching and working uh, to make sure children are protected in every state where they're endangered. Um, And that's going to be the states with the abortion bans.
0: Yeah. (sighs) All right. Well, so three cases came down, not great decisions for children, but there's one that came down that is. Um, So Alice, tell us about this, this fourth case. Um, I'm going to (laughs) say the name wrong. It's Golan v. Sada. Is that right?
2: Your guess is as good as mine, Jill. So let's stick with it.
0: (laughs) Great. We're going to go with it then. What happened in this case?
2: We're really excited about this case because unlike the three cases that Professor Hamilton just described, this case Forces the court to actually consider the needs of the child, and those needs are a part of the court's decision. Um, so, the United States is a signatory to the Hague Convention on a—it's a long, long title—but the civil aspects of international child abduction, and our our membership to that specific convention uh, requires countries. To return children to their home countries in cases where they're wrongfully removed or taken out of the country. This typically applies in um, in custody cases, so where one parent flees a country with their child. That being said, uh, the United States, as you know, as one of these signatories, is not bound to return the child if if it finds that returning the child would expose them to a grave risk of either physical or psychological harm. And um, so in Golan v. Sada, we, uh, we saw one of those cases. Ms. Golan is a domestic violence survivor and the mother of a young child. And she um, fled to the United States from Italy um, with, with her child. And this case was brought, um, in the second circuit, there is this, um, there's this consideration that has been kind of added into the law requiring courts to consider every possible option called like an ameliorative measure that would facilitate the safe return of a child, even in the case of there being danger to the child. And so this case came up through the second circuit and it was found that this child had to be returned to Italy, even though there was this potentially grave harm present because the court went through this um, multi-month process to try and identify whether there were any possible situation where the child could be returned. Um, Meanwhile, Ms. Golan argued that her partner would not actually follow through on this very long specific list of circumstances and requirements. So we celebrate um, Justice Sotomayor's opinion because it acknowledged that the decision that came out uh, initially in this case did not consider the primary goal of the Hague Convention, which was to honor the safety of the child. And it also recognized that requiring requiring courts to consider every possible, like potential ameliorative situation um, would also just be extremely expensive and take a lot of time. And uh, Justice Sotomayor and the court recognized that kids need these decisions to be decided really quickly um, and that that's something we have to value in our decision making. So we celebrate a unanimous decision. We uh, we also see that it matters to be a member of the Hague Convention because it ultimately forced children into the spotlight of the court's decision-making.
0: That's great. Um, I think, I'm so curious, and I'd love your thoughts on this, like what what is, are there implications of this decision that will affect like child trafficking? Like I'm imagining that, is, is that's. I don't know if that's part of this, but I, how do you think it will influence those sorts of issues?
2: Uh, well, that's, I mean, I think that that is definitely a factor, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, federal regulations surrounding children who are in the United States arise from the, um, trafficking victims protection act. Mm-hmm. And I think that this case matters where you have a parent who is involved in the trafficking of their child. And ideally the, um, the exception that a state doesn't have to send a child back unless there is a grave risk would allow a court to, um, you know, to undergo that fact-finding process through its case to really identify whether a trafficking situation exists. Mm -hmm. Um, This case doesn't preclude a court from exploring the alternative ways that a child could safely return to a country it just doesn't require a court to undergo an expensive and time-consuming process where you leave a child just hanging in the balance
0: gotcha great yeah i mean i think kids lives move quickly you gotta we can't take forever to make decisions Um, so i think that's definitely positive movement forward Um, and very rare to have, it seems with this court, a unanimous decision. So also a good sign.
2: Many of the decisions of the court are actually unanimous, but they don't, um, they're, you know, they're maybe not typically the ones that get the, the public attention for sure. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So It is
2: encouraging in, in the context of this conversation to see a unanimous, a unanimous decision.
0: Yeah. At least a unanimous one in in the, uh, well-being of children. Um, so I also know that there are a few cases coming up um, in the next iteration of the court uh, that will affect kids. Uh, what should we be looking out for from the court moving forward?
2: There are three different categories of cases that the court is considering um, that have not yet been set for argument. Uh, there are a uh, about four cases that are rolled into one, focusing on affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, these cases challenge um, a school's right to consider race in um, in its application process and in its acceptance process. So, on one side, um, the Students for Fair Admissions it, uh, are arguing that using um, Using that admission process violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So the right of everyone to receive equal and um, full rights that we've all, all agreed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the that the University of North Carolina and in another case, Harvard College, unfairly use race to give significant preference to underrepresented minority applicants. Um, to the detriment of, of other, um, applicants of other races. So they, um, they are also claiming that these schools ignore race, what they call race neutral alternatives to achieve a diverse student body. On the other side, um, the University of North Carolina and Harvard College both say that their policies are constitutional, that they, um, you know, that they also have a compelling interest in racial diversity and the educational benefits of racial diversity. So we'll be curious to follow along with these cases and see where the court falls.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, and, you know, I've been following the Harvard case a little bit. Um, and it's, I'm definitely interested to see how this court's going to rule on it. Yeah. And there. Of- mm-hmm.
2: Uh, There are two other, you know, areas of cases that we're we're interested in watching. Um, A number of cases, again, are being considered that examine the um, scope of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Oh, yeah. Um, And the Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal law enacted in 1978 that, in part, um, establishes the standards for how Native American children are removed from their families. It... um, it contains a preference that Native American children are placed with extended members or that they stay in Native American foster homes in order to um, just honor their cultural traditions. And in um, in Texas v. Holland, the, the, there's the question of whether Congress as a federal body has the power uh, under uh, the Commerce Clause to enact laws that require states to to act. So that's one of their arguments. Another argument is that um, this kind of classification by race gives preference to Native families to the detriment of non-Native families who are seeking to foster children. Um, So that's a challenge under the Fifth Amendment, Equal Protection Guarantee. Again, there are, you know, a a few different cases that are rolled into this, but this case obviously represents um, a significant interest for children in the Native American communities, as well as really any families that are looking to adopt. Um, So it will come down to, I think, one of those two arguments so we're not sure which way the supreme court will go if they'll really focus in on the federal government or the congress's power to direct the states to act in a certain way or um, the equal protection guarantee and the rights of um, a native american child to their culture over the rights of a non-native fostering family um the the final case that we're we're watching this year is called Reed v. Gertz. and it's uh, it involves, um, or at least specifically in this case, it involves a Texas inmate named Rodney Reed, who was sentenced sentenced to death for um, a murder, and through you know after several various efforts to obtain um, post conviction relief, he. Uh, tried to have DNA testing conducted on several items that were from the crime scene. And the court um, denied his ability to do that. So uh, in this case, the Fifth Circuit ruled that it was too late for Reed to bring this case and that it should have happened within two years that he was initially denied the request for DNA testing. Um, And this case on its face doesn't seem, you know, obviously relevant to children, but the claim that he's making uh, could easily come up in any uh, criminal case in which there is a child involved or a child who's been victimized. And so it's, it's, I think it will be interesting both for defendants and for victims to know how long someone has to bring this specific kind of claim, especially in the context of crimes involving children.
0: Very interesting. And we'll definitely have to keep watching these cases to see how they turn out. Um, Well, thank you, Alice and Marcy both for kind of running through these Supreme Court decisions and how they affect children. Um, You know, I hope our audience has learned something about how their kids are affected by these cases. And again, we'll do this as there are new cases uh, that affect children, that new decisions that come out at the Supreme court. So continue to follow the podcast um, and we will continue to update you on how these decisions affect your kids and their rights. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. We, you know, we'll have another episode out soon
1: and everybody do not forget I'm going to keep reminding you that our annual event is November 3rd. Uh, We will be celebrating at the National Constitution Center and honoring some amazing heroes of child protection and also survivors. Uh, Check it out at childusa.org. And take care until the next episode of A Voice for the Kids.